If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Uh, if you're visiting today, I'll introduce myself to you. My name is Kyle, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And I uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming today. Um, all I could think during the, the worship when the words went away and all that was the inventor of the overhead projector is laughing at us somewhere, right? Or, the, or hymnal only folks are like, see, we, we told you. So there you go. But uh, good work, Josh, getting us back going. Appreciate you, brother. Um, the real important part of getting that back going is I've got another map for you today, and I know how much you loved maps last time, so we'll get to, get to show you a map of Paul's second missionary journey this morning. Uh, we are going to travel from Antioch in Syria all the way to Philippi, which is on Europe's soil, European soil. So uh, it's a long journey, uh, so I'll need lots of time this morning, so let's pray, uh, and then we'll get rolling. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have now to, to talk through your word, uh, to hear uh, it read and, and spoken about. Father, we pray that this event not simply be an event. Lord, I pray that it be a moment uh, where we see you more clearly, a moment where we uh, decipher who you are to where who you are is illuminated to our spirits. Um, and uh, God, help us now. Uh, by the power of your Spirit, to see you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, I, I, through this text, there's, there's an observation that, that's made uh, just kind of simply about what's taking place. And I think the observation is this, and it's in your worship guide there if you want to write it down. It's that Christ chooses to display His power through lives lived in obedience to Him. So Christ chooses to display His power through lives that are lived in obedience to Him. Now, I think this is significant for us today because we are Western Christians, and so we are engulfed in, really, in a westernized Christianity, uh, which I think, specifically for the Bible Belt, as Dustin Meadows mentioned a few weeks ago, is uh, we live basically in the buckle of the Bible Belt, so we're, we're right in the middle of it. Um, I think that Christianity is more cultural than it is anything else here. It's more just kind of what we do. It's, it's kind of who we are. And so being a Christian is not, uh, saying you're a Christian is not weird in some way. It's not really going to cost you anything at all. And, uh, but the, there's a problem on the back end of it not costing us. There's one, there's something to celebrate. We should be uh, joyful. We should be excited that we get to worship in a country where this is free for us, that we get to do this without having to worry about the government coming in and attacking us or taking uh, down all of our things or killing us or imprisoning us or any of those things. I'm grateful we don't worry too much about that, at least for the time being. I think the problem on the back end of that is, is that because it doesn't cost us anything, we don't ever see it as costly. And so we're not really willing to give up things. And, and here's what I mean by that. We want the power of Jesus without the obedience to Jesus. We want His power. We want all the stuff that comes with being a Christian. We want to be saved from hellfire. Uh, we want the Lord to intervene in moments of our life where things are going awry without much consideration maybe to why things went awry in the beginning. Um, and, and so we... We want miracles without sacrifice. 
We want His power to show in our lives without having to be obedient to Him. Uh, what we see is that people long to have, I've longed to have, divine intervention without discarding disobedience. It's like if I pray the right prayer, if I say it loud enough, clear enough, if I say it enough at all, the Lord has to bend Himself to my will and He'll do what I want. God becomes Santa Claus or a genie of some sort. Cultural Christianity is a focus on outward showings of faith without inward transformation. There's not much that's happened in here. We're just simply going through the motions. And I want you to know this, that such belief is unbelief. God will not be mocked by us. He will not be mocked by people, period. We cannot go on living in disobedience while demanding His power be present in our lives. Jesus says in John 15, He says, Abide in Me. And then He goes on to say, For apart from Me, you can do nothing. So there's this abiding in Him. There's this pruning process which keeps us abiding in Him. There's this moment where we unite ourselves to Him by faith, but we remain in Him by faith. We're, we're keeping covenant with Him as He's keeping covenant far better than we do with us. He's more faithful than we are. Yes, I agree. We're not perfect. But we want to honor the love that He's shown us by loving Him in return. We want to show that we love Him as Christ says, obey me. Uh, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. We want to do that. This should be who we are. I want to take it a step further and just say God will not heal your marriage if you don't surrender all of you to Him. God will not restore broken relationships if you do not humble yourself before Him. God will not give you wisdom for decisions if you are not reading His Word and seeking godly counsel. God will not keep you from destruction if you will not stop rebelling against Him. Amen? So I say again, Christ chooses to display His power through lives lived in obedience to Him. And I think that that's what we observe in Paul and his companions today. I think we see some schisms, we see some issues, we see some ways that they were disobedient, we see all of these things, but in all of it we see the power of Christ displayed in their life as they're seeking to be obedient to Him. So as we journey from Antioch to Philippi, and we can put that graphic up here and let's show you kind of where we're headed. So Antioch, Syrian Antioch is over here on the right, kind of bottom right center there. Um, we're going to go up through Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, uh, Antioch, and Pisidia. Uh, and then straight north from there, um, around Asia, which is not Asia as we know it today, um, and to Mysia, and then Trous. And we're going to cross the Aegean Sea, stopping at um, the island there of Samothrace. I don't know how to say that, uh, Neapolis, and then we'll land in Philippi and see some things there. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the events that take place during all of that because we don't have all of the events here. What we do have is what Luke thought was important for us to know and what he wrote down, and so we'll, we'll walk through those things. So let's just begin in Luke chapter 15, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Luke is writing, and uh, read through 16, verse 5. 
And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So if you'll remember the first missionary journey, they stopped at several cities. Many people came to know Christ. There were churches set up in these places. Paul's saying, hey, let's go back. Let's go back and see them, see how they're doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, or also known as John Mark, or Mark. Um, Now if you remember when we read in Acts 13, John Mark was with them for part of the journey. He went from Antioch to Cyprus, and they were on the island there of Cyprus, and they went from Paphos up to Italia, and when they landed at Italia, he left. We're not told why he left, he just leaves. And so uh, we read here that Barnabas is wanting to bring him back. He said, let's give him another try. Uh, Now Barnabas is widely believed to be the uncle to John Mark. Verse 38, it says, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul remembers what John Mark had done. And then in verse 39 it says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So the two, Barnabas and Paul, get into an argument over this and they separate. Barnabas takes Mark with him. He says, fine. Do what you want to do. We're going to go see the church. The church is there in Cyprus, the believers in Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So he goes up through uh, the top part of Syria there and into the area of Cilicia, strengthening churches. Now let's talk for a second about this disagreement over John Mark. I think the first event we see here is just the, the teams being assembled, and so we see this disagreement. And because he had left them on his first journey, they're, they're upset about this. Barnabas is like, hey, let's give him another try. He's a little older now. He's been with us a little longer. He's seen how we minister here in Antioch and maybe had traveled with them some to Jerusalem and back and maybe done some other ministry things. He says, hey, bring him along. And Paul says, no. Uh, Kent Hughes makes an observation that I think uh, maybe we can identify with. He says, our heart goes with Barnabas. We like second chances. We, we like the idea of being an encourager and helping someone along. And he says, but our judgment goes with Paul. We think, looking at this, that probably Paul makes a good point. Now, flawed humans, even these two great missionaries, will sometimes face moments of contention. Like there's, there's, so, there's no such thing as perfect leaders. There's no such thing as a perfect ministry. There's no such thing as even a perfect church. Amen? We, we know this to be true. Spurgeon says, and I love it, he says, imperfect as it is, referring to the church, he says it is the dearest place on earth. We will, in our lives, encounter all of us relational conflict while doing God's work. We'll butt heads with each other. We'll get on one another's nerves. We'll have disagreements in philosophy or uh, a method. But we must choose to walk humbly, graciously, lovingly before God and one another. Amen? And I think that is part of what we see these two men do as they decide to keep the mission a priority. All right, so 
They disagreed on the assembly of the team, right? They're like, I don't want John Mark. Paul says, I don't want John Mark, I'll take Silas. Barnabas says, I'll take John Mark and we'll, we'll go uh, west. You can go north and, and kind of go about it that way. Um, and so both in doing so, both Paul and Barnabas show that they're committed to the mission of Christ. They're obedient to the direction he had given them. They're willing to follow him. Now, what I want you to see, because I think it's worth noting, is God works sovereignly in their disagreement, in their conflict. He splits the team, of course. I mean, the, the team is split, but in that now we have two teams rather than one. Now, this text doesn't give us a reason, right? It's not like, well, great, now I can complain and I can murmur about folks and I can gripe and I can stir up dissension and the Lord will take it and do good things with it. Right? This doesn't give us a reason to do that. Those things are sinful behaviors. We don't act that way. But what it does show us is that God can work through all of our mess, all of our sin, and still advance the gospel through people who don't always get it right. Now, along the journey, um, let's read uh, on down through 16.5 here. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So that's that Jerusalem council uh, text that Jasper preached so well last week. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. So along the journey, a new face joins the team. His name's Timothy. They're going, uh, they're traveling from east to west across the top there. And Paul and, and Silas, as they arrive in Lystra and Derby, they come across this young disciple named Timothy. He stands out to Paul. Apparently, it stood out to those around him, as we read there in verse, uh, I think it was two. Yeah, two. What we learn about him is that his dad is an unbelieving Greek. His mom and grandmother, as we read in Timothy, were both Jewish and brought him up knowing the Scriptures, training him in the Scriptures. And having seen him, Paul says, hey, I want him to join us. Having heard about him, he's like, we can use, we can use this guy with us. But then he takes him and he has him circumcised. Now, does this void the Jerusalem council's decision? Does this not go against what they had decided? Is he not inflicting upon a non-Jew a Jewish tradition? No. Uh, upon further study in this, the uh, rabbinic law states that if someone has a Jewish mother and a Greek father, they're still considered Jewish. And because he was uncircumcised, he would have offended the Jews. It would have stirred up unnecessary uh, conflict as they're ministering in the synagogues and the places they were going to go. Now, how they would have known he was circumcised is their business. Amen? So, in the name of unity, though, as a sign of respect to Jewish heritage, as a sign of, of, of desired unity, 
And for missionary strategy, Timothy undergoes the painful surgery. Now, Paul and Timothy were willing, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, they're willing to become all things to all people. They're willing to do what it takes in order to reach some for the gospel, to be able to preach the gospel among all people in hopes that they'll be reached by it. Now, we should be willing to do the same. So long as we aren't sinning to do so. So long as we aren't saying, okay, I will join you in being a drunkard. I'll join you in blah, 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 gossiping for a moment if it means that now I can tell you about the gospel. We don't want that. But what we want to do is make sure that if anything's going to be a stumbling block as we're presenting the gospel, that it's the gospel itself. It's not our cultural behavior. It's not the way we think about something. It's not the way we practice things or even our freedoms that we're willing to, that we do have now in Christ, but that we're not flaunting those in a way that would cause someone to close their ears to what we have to say. If anything's going to cause someone to stumble, let it be the gospel and nothing else. Amen? So what this means is, is if we must abstain from something to reach a certain group of people, abstain from it for a season. If it means that you must practice something, adopt a practice, and uh, begin to, uh, if it's sitting on a floor with Muslims, to be able to talk about the gospel with Muslims, sit on the floor with Muslims. It's this idea of doing whatever it takes within, without, rather, violating God's word to reach whomever God would have us reach. So the team continues on. They're visiting churches, they're strengthening churches, they're delivering the Jerusalem Council's decision so that Jews aren't trying to inflict something on Greeks that they're not supposed to be doing, and everyone is being encouraged by it. And what we see in this, I think it's just worth noting, is like Paul's commitment in this journey, and Silas too, and Timothy also, their commitment in this journey to take the gospel, to share the good news with people, to strengthen churches, to show their love for people is a great example for us. It's a great example of Christian love toward one another and also great love for the Lord Himself. And as a result, churches were strengthened. They continued growing. And then something happens in verses uh, 6 through 10 here. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what we see here is the Spirit. We see two events, really. We see the Spirit closing doors and we see the Spirit opening doors. Now, after visiting many churches, they're traveling north from Pisidian Antioch. They're seeking to go into Asia. Some people think maybe they wanted to go ahead and go into Ephesus and places, Colossae, places like that, uh, places Paul wouldn't get to until his third missionary journey. But whatever it was they were headed, they were forbidden to do so, and so they must go north. And so doing so, uh, they end up in Traus, <laughs> which is there on the edge of the Aegean Sea, And this vision appears to them of a man from 
Macedonia. I'm sorry if that's really hard to see back there. There's probably a map in your Bible at the back of it if you wanted to follow that. Um, and so this, this man appears to him and, and, and appears to Paul in a dream and tells him, hey, come over here and help us. Now, we don't know exactly how they were forbidden. We, we don't know that if that the voice of the Lord hadn't, maybe, the, maybe they heard the voice of the Lord audibly, maybe it was another vision, maybe they lost peace in the journey, maybe there was a transportation breakdown, uh, maybe there was an illness. We, we really don't know what it was that caused them to say the Lord is forbidding us to go this direction. We just know that they concluded He's forbidding us. Now, God may prevent you from doing and going in many ways. We, we can't always identify those blatantly uh, from here. There's so many different ways God could do that. But what I want to encourage you with is don't despair in that. Don't despair in the prevention of going. Don't despair in the prevention of, of maybe even fruitfulness or feeling like you're banging your head against a wall. Don't despair in those things. Keep trusting the Lord, the one who leads us. We also see the Spirit opens the door. We see also in this text that Luke joins the team at this time, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But So they're led into Mysia by the Lord through a vision from the Lord then there. They are led to um, a real, really into Philippi, Macedonian area. Uh, and they believe that God wants them to evangelize the Macedonians. Now, verse 10, we see the word we. And it says, we sought to go on into Macedonia. Now, Luke, this is where Luke most likely joins the team. This is going to be the first of several instances where you see the word we, which means Luke's now uh, taking, uh, he's writing in the first person, plural here. All four men set sail across the Aegean Sea to preach the gospel. The passage leaves us with many questions. Uh, one thing, though, is clear God is guiding his people. God's leading the charge. He's guiding these missionaries. And this story, we must understand, is descriptive, not prescriptive. Amen? We're getting to read about the described event that we can see in Scripture. We're getting to read about that, but what it's not doing is prescribing for us the way you now should make all of your decisions. That if the Spirit of the Lord doesn't speak to you audibly or in some way that you're unaware of, or would become aware of, I guess. It doesn't mean that that's the way this is supposed to happen now. What it does mean is that the Spirit does lead us. He does guide us. And so while this event is being described, it's not prescribing the way we should do things. Even if we don't receive divine divisions, uh, visions, sorry, we too can make decisions that honor the Lord. So let me show you a few ways that I think this jumps out here. One, God guides us through both open and closed doors. God leads us through closed and open doors. John Stott writes, he says, let us rejoice that God both restrains us and prompts us, that he prevents and he permits. The second thing we see is that God's guidance isn't circumstantial, it's rational. It's not just on a whim. It's not just taking place willy-nilly, right? It's, it's happening rationally. We must think over what God's Word says and carefully make decisions. Knowing what His, uh, His will is in His Scripture, His revealed will, we can then perceive that unrevealed will. Now, it's not about guessing. 
It's about using godly wisdom. It's about gathering info, seeking the Lord, praying, making a decision. The third thing we see is that God's guidance is personal and communal. He's guiding us personally. He guides us in communal aspects with one another. There's a community part to this. And I just want to encourage you, don't seek God's will apart from listening to the counsel of other godly people in your life. Don't seek God's will apart from first reading His Word, of course, but get wisdom from others. Counsel with others. Listen to them. Now, God's guidance often, the final thing I want to show you is, just real quickly, is God's guidance often comes gradually and unpredictably. Right? These, this trip doesn't follow like a neat pattern. They, <laughs> they had to have wondered, like, what in the world is going on at some point? They went as far as they had planned. And then from there, it's like, okay, let's go into Asia. Nope, that's not going to work. Let's go into Bithynia. Nope, that's not going to work. God's leading them in the moments. It's a bit unpredictable, but they're following Him. They're being faithful to that. God expands their original plan, which was good and right. Let's go encourage churches. They know that they're allowed to do that. They know that God likes that, that God's for that. Let's go do that. And on the way, God begins to change things for them. He begins to lead them in new directions. So sometimes, all the time really, obedience is about doing what we know is right, what we know is correct, and then being sensitive to be led by the Spirit as we're doing those things. When it comes to following God's guidance, begin by obeying His revealed will. Then be sensitive to the Spirit, but don't get discouraged. And sometimes doors open. Sometimes doors close. A Christian's life goal is to be faithful wherever the Lord leads us and to maintain a humble, open heart along the way. Amen? David Livingstone, the great missionary, uh, he says, Without Christ, not one step, but with Him, everywhere. Amen? Without Christ, not one step, but with Him, everywhere or anywhere. Even in the journey, we see in these men that Christ chooses to display His power through lives lived in obedience to Him. Now, let's talk about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It's a leading city of the district. Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, seized the city in the 4th century B.C. He named the city after himself and enlarged the gold mining operation there. It came under Roman domination in 168 B.C. and was enlarged in 42 B.C. So this is a Roman colony now. The missionaries, upon entering Philippi, may have stayed several weeks. It's unclear once again. They experienced a great work, that much is certain just in the stories we do see, and probably many conversions, but Luke tells us about three of them. Now, in doing so, he shows us that God breaks down dividing barriers between people, that He can unite in Christ anyone, all people of varying kinds. As we observe these conversions, we're encouraged, I think, at how Christ uses His people to display the life-saving power of the gospel to create more of God's people, to see people saved. So, the first instance is the transformation of a wealthy woman. Look at verse 13. And on the way, or sorry, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside 
where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One of who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, sounds good, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now it says that Lydia was a seller of purple goods. Lydia was wealthy. Purple goods were expensive in this day. They are often associated with royalty. They're highly desired. Business is profitable in this Roman colony. Her, at the end of this piece, hosting people in her home also implies that she was a woman of means. She had a home large enough to host people in. As we see at the very end of the passage today, she is uh, the host of the church. The church begins to meet in her, na- in her home. Sorry. So Lydia was an entrepreneur. She's setting up business in Philippi, and she is outside the city as a God-fearer in a Bible study, or not a Bible study, but in some sort of prayer group with other people. She's a God-fearer. Now, God-fearer doesn't mean she was a Christian, at least yet, but she was seeking God. And in her seeking, the Lord opened her heart. It's another way that we see God is always faithful, as he says in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, that those who seek me will find me. Jesus says as much also, if you will seek me, you will find me. Um, the Lord will not ever turn away seeking hearts. Amen? So what does this mean, though, that the Lord opened her heart? Well, it means this, that the God of all grace opened her spiritual eyes so that she could embrace Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 5-6 through 6 says this. Paul's writing through the church at Corinth. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. First of all, can we just get on board with that? That what we tell others is not about how amazing we are now that Christ has entered our life or about how well we follow Him. What we tell others is about how wonderful Christ is and we are now here as His servants. Amen? This is the way we live. That's humility in service to the Lord right there. Let's go on. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness... He made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So he's saying the God who spoke light into being, let light shine out of darkness, creates light ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. That it's that God who speaks into the heart and says, let it be illuminated to see Christ. The eyes of our heart are opened and we now see, we have a knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is what happens to Lydia in this moment. This is what the text means when it says God opened her heart. God worked in Lydia's heart, gave her a new life as she heard the gospel. She was saved the same way any of us have been saved. We heard the message of grace preached and we responded to it because the Lord opened our heart to receive it. Now, She becomes, in this moment, the first convert that we know of on European soil. 
in a seemingly very small event, a small group of people gathered outside Philippi, a Roman colony, a woman is saved, and the beginning of a new church starts. The gospel advances. Now, if you're an unbeliever in here, you hear these things, you hear these stories, and you're like, I don't know what to think about that. Or I'm just kind of here today. Thank you for coming. I want to encourage you to listen to the Gospel being preached. Read about it in the Gospel of John. Read about it in Acts. See as you seek the Lord if He will not do something in your heart as you encounter day after day the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer in here, remember that the Lord still does converting work through faithful messengers of the Gospel. Your Lydia is waiting. The person who needs to hear the Gospel in your life is waiting. Trust God to work through you as you speak to them. Now Lydia not only shared the message with her whole household, which likely included her servants, she shared her home with the missionaries, and soon she would share it with the church in Philippi. She provides a wonderful example of generosity and hospitality. And one thing that it encourages me to do is I see a home something that I'm grateful for, but largely just feels like a piece of my life, I see a home being used as a wonderful tool for ministry. We should all seek to practice hospitality, to serve the church, to serve our neighbor. We can use our homes, each of us, to serve others, unbelievers, believers alike. I was asked this question as I was reading a book this week. And it was about being missional. And the question was, when was the last time, and it was specifically addressed to pastors, but when was the last time you used your home to host unbelievers? That hit me like a ton of bricks this week. So, the second instance is 16 through 18. There's this slave girl who comes into the picture. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, seems to be a bit that way, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. This slave girl was experiencing double bondage, right? She's enslaved by a demon, but she's also enslaved by her owners who were using her possession as a way to make money. And then Satan wants to use her to derail the missionaries' work in Philippi by somehow forming an alliance with them that would kind of derail what they're saying, that it would mix it with uh, these evil spirits and things. But Paul's not having it. He said, we're not going to be associated with the occult. We're not going to be associated with false messages, even though in that moment she's speaking truth about them. Right? They are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming the way of salvation. But if they didn't deal with the Spirit then, it was going to blaspheme the name of Christ in its work. 
And so Paul didn't fall prey to the evil scream, he, uh, evil scheme. He frees the girl with a word in Jesus' name, telling it to come out. And in a moment, Jesus cast out the demon at, at work in the girl. The power of Christ is displayed as she is delivered, and I presume she became a follower of Jesus, just like possessed people in the gospel accounts when Christ would cast the demons out of them. She suddenly has her right mind again. She's suddenly got a new owner, Jesus. She's slave to the Most High God now, following Him. He freed her from bondage. He gave her life. He opened her heart in the way He opened Lydia's heart. Now, if you look at the two women, they're drastically different. Lydia is wealthy. The girl is poor. Lydia was in high standing in the community. The girl was exploited and abused. Lydia is religious and moral. The girl is broken and tormented. These things are a reminder that the gospel transforms all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. The power of Jesus saves us from our sins. Now, if Jesus can save this girl, He can save you. He can break your addictions. He can free you from negative thoughts. He can deliver you from all sin. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Be obedient to Him. Follow Him. The final event here is the transformation of a jailer. Look at verse 19 through 34. So when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They're not going to make any more money. And they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to, uh, into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is amazing. Paul and Silas, preaching the gospel, deliver this girl. It incites a riot. They're arrested. They're beaten, flogged. They're bloody. They're gross. You know how blood kind of sticks to you? That's how they're sitting in these stocks in this dungeon. They're fastened to them in such a way that they, they can't get out. 
And yet God delivers them. And the moment there, in all that anguish, all that suffering, rather than throwing a pity party, rather than being like, why in the world, God, are you allowing this to happen to us? They're singing. They're encouraging one another. I don't know, you know, used to late at night, we don't really have CDs anymore, so I don't even know if this exists. Um, Used to late at night, you'd see like, now that's what I call music, or you'd see, you know, some R&B jams that were on a CD, you know, that kind of thing. I I just imagine as much as Paul was in prison, he had like a a hymns for prison album, you know, and and he, he just resorted to singing those when he got down, when he was locked up. And here he is in that moment, he's just, he's just singing along to, you know, Barry Manilow or something about the Lord. And there's just great peace. There's faith in the Lord. And, and I can't imagine being there in the dark and likely the feces that's at the bottom of that thing with my wounds opened, my blood stuck to me, hearing people sing to the Lord. And I think that I suffer and go through really difficult things. And I know that I do, but, but I won't sing to the Lord often in those moments. And I just observe their faith and I think, man, that's what obedience to the Lord looks like in spite of circumstances. But this is, goes back to what I was talking about earlier about how Christianity is more cultural for us. It matters what we're going through as to whether or not we're going to sing to the Lord or not. For these people, they knew this was going to cost them something. And they said, it does not matter. We will sing always to the Lord. Counting it as great joy, we know. And then God shakes the earth. And I've seen faith in people. I've never seen the earth shook under my feet. But I have seen faith in many of you here. John Ed, Cindy Gunnels. James, Amanda Jones, people who've lost children way too early and yet still come in and sing praise to God. And I think, man, if I have a bad day, I don't want to sing. And and these people are great... Yeah. Amen. So here they are in obedience, suffering for obedience, but singing because they count it as worthy. (laughs) They've been counted as worthy to suffer. And I think faith like that still rocks us today. I think faith like that still shakes places. still shakes us down to our core when we see faith like that in others. And there's often multiple responses to this, at least two. One is belief, the other is unbelief. The jailer panics in the moment, not knowing what's just happened, but he sees that the doors are open and just concludes they're all gone. I'm going to be held responsible for this. I must go ahead and kill myself. At least then maybe it would look like they attacked him. Maybe it saves his family some shame. And Paul hollers out, no. 
And, and in that moment, he's like, what in the world? And he just runs down to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul points him to the same Jesus who saved Lydia, to the same Jesus who saved the slave girl, and he says, believe in Jesus. He can save you. He can save your whole house. We must keep telling people that. Believe in Jesus. He can save you. He can save your whole house. The jailer feeds and washes the disciples who had fed him the gospel and washed him in Christ for eternity. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Jesus calls and unifies all kinds of people into his family, intending for us to serve one another as brothers and sisters on mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? We're about out of time, but let me finish this event right here. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So the magistrates wanted them gone, out of the city. They probably just want them to leave town, like stop doing these things. But Paul, in the moment, invokes his Roman citizenship, demands due respect. Now, does Paul just simply want to humiliate people? No. I think Paul, is, in this moment, is ensuring the safety of the church. He's showing that he and Silas had done nothing wrong and that Christianity was no threat to the Roman way. He helped in this moment the relationship with Rome, with these Roman authorities, with this new church at Philippi. And upon leaving, he stops by Lydia's house, and he visits the congregation of believers there. And before they, were arrived, before they arrived, there were no Christians in town. There were no believers now there's a church, likely including the jailer and his family and this slave girl also. These people probably never spoke to one another beforehand, probably had very little interaction, if any, with each other, and now they're family. They're using their lives together for the spread of the name of Christ. And they're seeing the power of Christ firsthand. I want to encourage you, New Life, seek God's guidance. How can we use our lives to spread His fame in Columbia County? How can we be obedient to Him? Trust His power. Know that He'll move on your behalf, that as you're acting in obedience, God is going before you. He's with you in those things. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim salvation day to day, wherever you are. And let's do it until He returns. Why? Because Jesus chooses to display His power 
through people who live their lives in obedience to Him. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?